0: Hello and welcome back to Loading Screen, a podcast where we discuss various gaming phenomena. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Reza, and I'm joined by Tristan. Hello. Over the last few episodes, we've been talking about how it can feel to play older games and some of the ways that people can access them if they haven't done this in the past. For the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about a whole new topic altogether. We mentioned it in the last episode, but the focus for the next two episodes is going to be about the perception of video games and how that's changed over the years since video games have really come out. For the next two episodes, we'll dive into the ways that gamers and non-gamers have viewed video games since they first came out. And then we're going to have a deeper conversation about which of these perceptions are valid and which ones of these are are like totally off the base. Yeah. Um, So uh, before we kick it off, I kind of want to set a foundation for how long you and I have kind of been playing video games um, and and what drew us towards that. So um, I guess this is my question for you, Tristan, which is like, how long have you
1: been playing video games and how did you get started? Um, I've been playing video games since like... I think nineteen ninety seven. That's when I was born. That's I've been playing video games since you were born, Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> I distinctly remember um my dad and I were trying to play the Lion King on the computer. It was like a 2D platformer. That was I mean, at least for me at that time, it was very difficult. Um and then since then, you know, pl- been playing console games, PC games, whatever, but yeah, it started way back then. Total segue, but I know about this Lion King game, and it's
0: actually notoriously one of the most difficult video games ever made. Yeah. So it's hilarious that that, that is one of the games that you remember <laughs> That's all kicked it off. Yeah, as, yeah, exactly. And it's funny that you don't like difficult video games now, like like stop <laughs> games. Maybe you're just
1: traumatized
0: from your Lion King games.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was fueled by pure rage and anger for the first, you know, 20 plus <laughs> years, and then now I'm chilling out a little bit, but... Yeah, that that's, I think, the first video game that I remember playing. I mean, my dad also liked playing video games, and mm-hmm. he would always tell me, you know, when I was a baby, he would like sit me in his lap and play whatever a console. I, I, I There were a lot of bootleg consoles in Korea, so yeah. I don't know if they're, I don't know what their formal names are, but he would tell me about those. But how about you? How long have you been playing video games? Yeah.
0: I mean, I feel like my first memories are also from when I was pretty young, like right after I'd moved here from America. Um, I, I was probably seven or eight years old at that time. I think it was like 2002 or something. Um, but my first console was a PS two. I can't remember exactly when my dad got it for me, but that was the first console that he got for me. And like, I liked playing video games and it was often games that I would play with friends and, and with cousins. But Mm -hmm. I didn't really, I didn't view it as a part of my identity or anything like that. (laughs) Uh, Like at that point, I was like, I didn't even have a memory card for my PS2. I would just play a game and then forget about it. But I feel like the first time where I started playing games genuinely and it became like a hobby was uh, way, way later when I was actually in college. The PS4 was like the first real adult purchase that I made with my internship salary. Um, uh, and I got it to play God of war. And after that, I think I, I really started leading into it as like a way to deal with my stress and relax. And it became like an actual hobby, um, yeah. which was way later than I think most gamers actually get into it. Yeah. You are a late bloomer in that sense. College. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now I've probably surpassed most people in how addicted I am to, <laughs> uh, to a lot of
1: these games. Do, do you feel like video games have, it's like part of your brand now? uh i don't know i don't think i'm as good as you've been
0: about making it my brand like i think <laughs> most of my like like you're at, like people just you know like see your twitter and they know like tristan yeah is, is like a gamer whereas i feel like my closest friends kind of know that i'm like a pretty big gamer and i love video games mm-hmm. but it's not i don't think people will like naturally come to me for like video game recommendations or stuff like that even though i have literally written stuff for people that ask me about uh like video games and like yeah what, what they should try um yeah I want it to be a, a part of my brand because I kind of, I like it. I like recommending video games. It's a ton of fun, but it's definitely not as big a part of my brand as, uh, as like, as you got it. Okay. Yeah. You've been doing this for a lot longer than I have. You like to explore a lot of things. You're, you're a pretty busy guy. I would say, what do you think actually made you stick with video games for so long? Like what's kept you going back to them? versus mm-hmm. moving on to other hobbies.
1: Obviously, the first one is variety, right? You can't you mm-hmm. can't argue against that. There's such a diverse set of video games, indie games, AAA games, right? Yeah. If you want to play a certain type of video game, It's probably been created already and can probably play it right now. So I think that's kept me around. And I think the second thing is I like to engage in my hobbies more vigorously than others.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you do have a bit of an addictive personality,
1: I think. Yeah. And I think part of it is that with that variety comes with a lot of new challenges and skill sets I can pick up. Mm -hmm. So I won't go into it in too much detail, but like this podcast, for example, right. A casual gamer is not going to think about, Oh, let's talk about video gaming phenomena, but like going through the production phase of this recording, editing, I learned a lot of skills. I hope you did too. You know, I was involved in like video game tournament organization, writing for various news outlets. So I think part of it is that it allows me to try out different things within a broader set of, you know, the realm of video games. Yeah, yeah. No, I
0: think that makes sense. I think with your particular interest, it's a very branching hobby and that you do, you you like games, but then you like all the things that games kind of pull you to and like the discussions that it brings you to in the communities and stuff like that, which is, um, it's really interesting. I think it's a very different way to approach gaming compared to someone like me, who's historically been very driven to like story player, uh, story games and, Mm. and, and like single player games. And I didn't naturally reach out to communities or anything like that. For me, what's really kept me going back is just the fact that it's such a unique medium when it comes to storytelling. Yeah. Um. And it it's just like naturally active, right? Like you play a role in everything that happens in the game a lot of the times, and it's just fun. There, all, there is also something fundamentally addictive about it. I'm the same as you in the sense that I get hooked to these games and I'll play them for 200, 250 hours, mm-hmm. even past the point of sanity. And I think games have a unique ability to kind of like hook into that compared to things like movies or, or books or something like that.
1: It's it's like that active part that makes it so fun at least for me of like even the most inactive games you you still have to press a button to make it move forward yeah exactly quick time quick time events my my favorite thing about video games (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
0: um i feel like we've talked about a lot of different sentiments um in like past episodes and even in this one we've talked about how it's kind of addictive at times how it's very rewarding for a lot of people it's community driven I'm kind of curious, as uh, a fellow Asian, how did your parents and friends kind of perceive the way that you interacted with, with video games? And like, what are the, some of the perceptions that they have about video games growing up?
1: Yeah, surprisingly, my parents were actually pretty lax with. with my free time. Like, I mean, this is going to personal information, so future Tristan decide what to do with this, but <laughs> like, they love Korea because of all of like the schooling system and the expectations people have to like go to after school, school classes and things like that. So they, they wanted me and my sister to have more freedom. And I think part of that reflected in how they let us play video games. And this was very relative to my other Korean friends where, you know, one, they would have very hard limits on how much video games they can play Two, like, they would like their parents would literally uh, remove the Ethernet cable from their computer. <laughs> oh my right? god! During the day, so they can't even like sneak onto the internet and stuff. Yeah. Whereas my parents just kind of let us do whatever. Yeah. And I felt like that actually worked out to be better because I didn't have this sentiment of like, oh my god, I really really need to play video games right now. Right. Like, part of like taking things away from someone creates even more incentive, right? Yeah. More, like Temptation. So, I would just kind of stop playing, you know, when I got bored or whatever. Um so I I feel like I ended up ended up fine and my parents did a good job, but like compared to other Asian families, my parents were super lax.
0: I feel like my parents weren't too involved with limiting how much I played video games for the most part, especially since I wasn't doing it that much in mm-hmm. like my high school and like middle school time. When they actually had a say in what I did with my time, but I definitely feel like some of it has slipped into my like, uh, adult life, like in college and the fact that I'm like 25, 24 now, they, they still comment on my video game engagement every once in a while. Like they know that oh, it's really? a, they, yeah. Like they know that it's something I care about and they like the fact that I have a podcast and stuff like that. But I think to them, they still generally perceive it as, as something that like is made for kids and isn't something that, like, a lot of real adults do. Like, it's very clearly seen as this thing, is like, oh, yeah, Rezzo likes his video games. It's fine. He, mm-hmm. he figured, like, he has his life figured out. Um, as opposed to being something that they, like, actively encourage or are, like, respectful of to some degree. It's pretty... Um, and I feel like that's what I've gotten from a lot of other people when I've asked them this question as well. The big theme is, like, uh, around laziness or like distracting, I think distracting is the one that comes up with a lot around like, this is distracting you from real hobbies or going out like more
1: active hobbies, which I think is pretty interesting I think maybe that's why I even implicitly or subconsciously try to do something a little extra with video games because like yeah. you know so, my parents don't really comment on it anymore, and I still play a lot it 's not like you know I I play like an hour a week or something, Um, but I would be like, hey, I went to Seattle to report on the international with the news site that I'm working with, right? Yeah. Which like is kind of like just like a journalism job, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just in the space of video games. So I would just like show them a couple things that I've done over the years. And I feel like they've just been like yeah, you know, you can do your own thing. I actually now they're more interested. They're like, oh, like they subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. I oh, think they listen to it when they're I trust my on parents. It's yeah, nice to <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah, so I, I feel like they've gotten more into you know some of the stuff that I've been doing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I feel like my par- my parents, to be clear,
0: my parents are actually pretty supportive of the podcast. Like, they were very happy that I do it and, and mm-hmm. they still listen to it and stuff like that. It's funny, though, the parts of games that our parents seem to like or that other people seem to be impressed by are, like, the things that come after the game. It's not the games themselves, right? It's very much yeah. like, oh, yeah, like, you guys have turned this into a real hobby, as opposed to, like, viewing games as being, like, a hobby themselves, which I think is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean... We can't do any of this if we haven't played the games. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Isn't that the same with every other hobby, though? And I guess we'll get into that in, in, in the next two episodes. But like watching movies, that's pretty passive as well. I think it depends on the
0: hobby. Like no one criticizes anyone for reading. I don't think like like most people wouldn't be like oh, you read too much. That's distracting. That's like not, that's kind of lazy that all you do is read.
1: Yeah. Um. I feel. But what like if you're reading like romance novel smut stuff? <laughs> you know, that's, that's 30 novels a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is romance. I feel like <laughs> even then
0: though, like the perception, it's still an active thing to do. For kids anyways, if you're yeah. watching a kid spend 10 hours a week reading versus playing games for 10 hours, uh, I think the perception is still more critical of video games versus other hobbies. Like I think TV. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, no one wants to watch your kid only watch TV for like four hours a day for five days a week. But I think the interesting thing is it seems to be more about what hobbies are active versus which ones are inactive. Mm -hmm. Uh, and like the inactive ones like TV and like movies and stuff like that are the ones that are criticized more heavily. Yeah. But I find it interesting that video games are bundled with the inactive ones as opposed to being bundled with the active Active ones. Yeah, Yeah. Um, uh, which is, I mean, valid in some ways, but also very invalid in like a lot of other ways. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, we have a lot to chat about with this. I think it's a pretty, pretty big topic. One thing I wanted to chat about really quickly was a lot of the negative perceptions of new games over time and how they really developed. I think like right now, when we talk about a lot of these sentiments, they're not necessarily the greatest, no one wants to be told that the hobby they're doing is lazy or distracting or anything, but they're also not necessarily harmful towards anyone in a direct way. But there was a time i think where a lot of these perceptions were actually potentially dangerous for some people Mm -hmm. uh for like a very short period of time which is pretty interesting yeah um i guess my question for you is how early do you think a lot of these perceptions for video games as being like
1: lazy or anything like that like how early do you think they were kind of set in place i think at the beginning you said um since video games are created so that that's like the 80s right um, yeah. but maybe a little later, cause like, oh man, we, we've got to keep using this example. Pong was not negative. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe a little after Pong. <laughs> Everyone knows how, how bad Pong is for your brain. How evil yeah. <laughs> it is.
0: So how satanic it is. No, what's what's actually interesting is a lot of these perceptions of video games are actually, it seems like they were set in place even before video games even existed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like the best example for this, uh, is how they were kind of there for the, even during the time, like board games. And the first record of this that I could really find was, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, uh, so we've talked about D and D in the past and a couple of other episodes, namely the episode where we covered RPGs D and D is an, uh, is, is a role playing game. So you play with your friends to go on a fantastical adventure where you do some quest, explore some location. It's very fantasy based and it's created a lot of the foundation for, for many modern role-playing games. Yeah. Um, I think it's to date, easily one of the most popular games that's ever been created and it stood the test of time, right? Like it, a lot of people really still play this, yeah. um, which is, which is kind of cool. Well, what's interesting is it has a pretty long history for negative perceptions, particularly by evangelical groups, because it has a lot of content that to those folks is seen as satanic propaganda, Um, (laughs) which is kind of hilarious to even talk about or think about. But for a while, it was like, genuine fear for some people that it promoted things like Satanism, like witchcraft, or that it increased the chance of violence and suicide. And the last two of like increasing the chance of violence is one that we'll come back to later because it's a theme that pops up across a lot of different video games, but a lot of this started, uh, honestly, just because of a lot of like misinformation and misconceptions, the earliest known story that I could find was about a guy named James Dallas Eckvert the third, which is a mm-hmm. pretty regal name. Um, this kid was was about 16 in 1979, uh, and unfortunately, he attempted suicide in a set of tunnels under Michigan State University. Oh. Um, after this happened, the family hired a private investigator, and he found out that these same tunnels where he attempted suicide were also tunnels where groups of people would meet up to play D&D. Um, yeah. and, and he shared this with the press. Um, and so naturally, you know, this kind of caught a lot of traction, and uh, it spiked a lot of fear from folks that like... This group of people had been meeting, playing this game that had themes of like Satanism, witchcraft, and this kid was affected by that. And because of that, he, you know, it's like, that was one of the main reasons for why he tried to commit suicide. In fact, later, a novel called Mazes and Monsters was released in 1981. And it had a very similar plot of the story of like a, a, a child that, that, that kind of disappeared and it was even like made into a movie later. So it, it caught a lot of traction. A lot of people were aware of it. Later, the original PI who shared the news, he wrote another book called The Dungeon Master. And he concretely stated that he didn't think that D&D was like the cause for this kid's death, but that there was a lot yep. of other factors. But at this point, like there had already been a lot of attention towards this. Right, and right. just a lot of folks that caught on to this thing. The funniest thing I found was this one person advocacy group, which I don't even know if it's an advocacy group, if it's one person, <laughs> but it was called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. Uh-huh. Bad for short, which was started by this woman named Patricia Pulling, and she was known for literally like spreading pamphlets and, and being very vocal about how Dungeons and Dragons was evil. I actually found one of these pamphlets while I was looking it up and was reading through it, and it was hilarious, the things that like she was citing as evidence. like She found like four kids' uh, deaths and was like, they all played Dungeons and Dragons before they mm-hmm. died. And I was like, okay, this was over the course of three years. Uh, like a lot of kids passed away, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't think Dungeons and Dragons was the one factor for why they passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually the stigma drew so much attention that the D&D publishers, uh, TSR started actually removing references of satanic monsters in their second version of the handbook. No. Even in recent media, like this is sometimes an element of the plot. So like in Stranger Things, spoiler alert, when a lot of things start going awry, the small town folks start blaming the local D&D group when oh. things go awry. Um, and it's pretty wild, like how yeah, it's it goes really far too. It's like I don't want to spoil it, but it's pretty intense. Um, I didn't play D
1: and D growing up, but I, I know you've had like a little bit of experience here. Um, so I didn't play it as a kid. I've been playing it recently, so may, maybe I'm a, I'm not a good example because I wasn't. That's I've
0: um, been indoctrinated
1: uh, by now, right? Exactly. Um, but I I feel like hearing this history with you. It almost feels like a case of bad luck, right? Like, yeah, this PI happened to find it. What What if there was a romance novel down there instead of a? <laughs> I just gotta keep going back to that now. That's my yeah, one, really to don't like romance novels, yeah, do you? yeah. I am so sorry. Uh, and then like at that point, it's too late, right? It's in the mainstream media and everyone's blaming it. It's like an easy thing to blame too, it's like a new thing, yeah. um, but honestly, like. Going back to my experience with it recently, I feel like, you know, you, you talked about storytelling and video games and, and kind of that creativity. Yeah. Uh, if you have a really good DM, I feel like DND is the best narrative gaming experience you yeah. can have. Because uh, the reasoning is like, you can do anything that you want, right? And the DM will adapt to whatever you decide to do, whatever you you know, fail at, pass that. And I feel like it's a really fun experience where there's a lot more freedom than your traditional video game. Yeah, I totally buy it. I've, I've actually really wanted to try D&D for some amount of
0: time, but I think it could be a bit of a steep slope to try to learn sometimes. So that's kind of been the only thing that's kept it away. I can kind of empathize a little bit with the folks that kind of bought into this back then, right? Like even the concept of this like role playing game where you would like sit around with friends and like, uh, have a dungeon master and stuff like that. I think for mm-hmm. folks that hadn't been exposed to this at all before, if the only thing you saw was like, oh, some kid died. The title was called Dungeons and Dragons, which isn't necessarily <laughs> the most like positive glittery thing on the planet. And yeah. then if you caught that it had elements of like Satanism or witchcraft in it, uh, which it, it does in the sense that like there's characters that are demons yeah, there's like a deep yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah like it's totally harmless but i think if you're paranoid which a lot of people at this time were probably um you know i i can understand why it caught on some of these uh, like fears it's
1: totally irrational mm-hmm. but it was also like i understand why it would have happened a little bit maybe give me maybe like another year and we'll see what happens to me but, uh, <laughs> Jesus. yeah, maybe we'll come back to this podcast a year from now. It's just
0: going to be me uh, and I'll be like, we learned our lesson we? yeah, Satanism uh, and witchcraft. <laughs> I'm all into that. I guess like going back to the topic a little bit here, I, Dungeons and Dragons was really the first instance that I could find of this like negative perception attached to this phenomenon of games, mm-hmm. but I think it, it kind of continued past that very significantly, right? As video games themselves became, began to become like more popular. Yeah, There was a lot of similar attention drawn towards their effects. And I think the another prevalent theme is how they relate to violence and gore. We alluded to this like a little bit earlier, right? Like we, we talked about how some people perceive them as being like overly violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been around for a very, very long time. So just a little bit of context as well. At the time that a lot of the games that there was concern around were being released, there was a lot of attention drawn towards gun-related crimes around the country. So like gun-related homicides had had kind of been going up a lot. And there was a lot of concern amongst the public in general when it came to violence. And that led to a natural push for a lot of attention being drawn towards a lot of these video games. And in 1993, in fact, there was like a series of Senate hearings about some of the video games that were triggered during this time that a lot of the public had concerns around whenever it came to violence uh, Mm -hmm. and and things like that. The main ones that come to mind are Mortal Kombat. And then there was a couple of smaller games that were released called Night Trap, Lethal Enforcer. A lot of these games were some of the first to feature like pretty controversial content. And it just drew a lot of attention from people that weren't really exposed to a lot of the stuff later. Doom also came out right after the first of these hearings in 1993, and Doom is not exactly the most flowery of video games. Um, so, like at that <laughs> there's time, there's demons
1: in that game too.
0: Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah, is uh it's it's beautiful. You know, it's a great story-driven uh, video game. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so going back to Mortal Kombat a little bit. Mortal Kombat, I think, like, we're all familiar to it now. It's, like, the campiest video game. It's, it's honestly goofy looking back at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was originally released as an arcade game in 1992. And it was pretty controversial for its brutal combat and, at the time, what was considered to be, like, realistic visuals. Because there was just a lot of blood and gore and, like, violent
1: imagery here. Um, I, I want to jump in for a second. Yeah. I I feel like... Okay, 1992, we're past... I'm going to keep bringing this up. I'm sorry. Um, We're past Pong. (laughs) Right? Yes, we're past Pong. But if you look at the other games in that era, there's a lot of pinball games still. There's a lot of, like, 8-bit, 16-bit sprite games. Like, I don't know if you've played, like, Puyo Puyo. No, I haven't. Okay. Now I'm going to have to pull another game from that era that i know of that you also know of Uh, (laughs) fatal fury uh no oh my god i have a feeling you're not gonna know any games i wasn't born
0: tristan i was born in 1997 okay
1: well um yeah i i don't see any i see mahjong but i know mahjong oh street fighter 2 i know street fighter yeah that's like that maybe maybe a better comparison like Um, Where was I going with this? Oh, the point that I was trying to make was like video games let you live crazy experiences, right? Like we go to the movies to do this too. Like think about all the action movies that came out in the 90s. I'm thinking like all the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, right? Like Sylvester Stallone. These are not things that you would do in real life, I hope. It entices the players if you're able to shoot down aliens or like fight aliens and and all that. And I feel like it was also a draw, because people were sick of playing Pong at that point. Um, So, like, flashy. Sick (laughs) of Pong? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sick of Pong. This is going to turn from a bit to, like, a weird meme. Like, I'm going (laughs) to end up buying Pong for my house. Um, But, yeah, I feel like, to be honest, like, if you look in the grand scheme of things, this was similar to what all the other media was doing at that time. I just want to bring that up. Like yeah. video games weren't an outlier in this period. Yeah, I think it's pretty valid.
0: I think the thing that makes them unique is that they were just fundamentally newer as a medium, right? Uh-huh. This was also around the time when home consoles started becoming more common and there was like a push to get these games into home consoles as opposed to... Like Mortal Kombat first came out as an arcade game and it was only accessible uh, by arcades. But the thing that actually made it get a lot of attention was when it was finally licensed out to home consoles and when they wanted to bring it to households, right? And the fact that these things were just generally more accessible over time, there was no like parallel to it, right? New genres of books can come out, but our parents have all have read books, right? Movies can come out. Our parents have seen (laughs) movies, but like video games are just like a very foreign concept for the most part, which I think made it
1: so that people were just like more
0: suspicious of them to some degree, scared. right?
1: Yeah, they were sc- I, scared of video games. You know what we should do? I think we should make a nineties PSA, uh, <laughs> about a Pong. Short film. Well, not about Pong, <laughs> about, <gasps> you know, you know, little Billy's bringing in Mortal Kombat into the household. And, oh my God. you know it's 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 causing family breakdown, and God knows what. Oh my God. i
0: yeah, I hesitate to think of like what modern media would be able to do with this shit if uh, <laughs> if, it came, if this fear was happening right now. yeah I think the the other thing was like a lot of gaming studios also didn't really know how to handle this, right? So going back to Mortal Kombat a bit, when it was being brought to home consoles, there were like two major companies that were at the center of a lot of these discussions around video games, whether they're too violent, how to handle that, and that was uh, Sega and Nintendo. Um, And each of these companies had a very different approach to handling these kinds of video games, because at this time there wasn't an industry standard for video game ratings. Sega had wanted one for a while, but Obviously, as a competitor, Nintendo didn't want to do anything with it. Nintendo's approach was like, we pick which games are going to be on our consoles, and so we're just going to pick the ones that we think are the most appropriate. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious, right? Like
1: just hey, self-regulation
0: I, never really I mean, works.
1: Do you remember the Nintendo Seal of Approval? No, what is this? So if you look at games, I think uh older than N64. Yeah like N64, uh, N64 and older. Every single game had this like, uh, like gold trimmed stamp. Like you can look it up. This is a real thing. And it's like the Nintendo seal of approval. And it needs the seal of approval for it to be released and published. Oh, seal of quality, official Nintendo seal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm seeing photos of it. I'm I'm sure what happened is like a claim wanted to release their game. And Nintendo's like, we're not going to give you the seal unless you do X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's... Yeah, full control.
0: That's exactly what happened. Both of them made changes to the game before they, they like, released it to consoles because I think they both realized mm-hmm. this can't stay in its current form. But the approach, the severity of those changes was pretty different between Nintendo and Sega. Like, Nintendo made them, like, remove fatalities. It made mm-hmm. them remove gore and violence and artwork. It yeah. changed all the blood to be gray. So like, a very aggressive approach to, to you know, making... Mortal Kombat, more family friendly, which is hilarious. Sega did some changes, like they got rid of blood and uh, fatalities. But the thing is that they published a cheat code that allowed you to basically make the game go back to normal with all the blood and all the fatalities. And they'd rated this game for only people that are like 13 and older using their own rating system. But (laughs) it was so easy to access the cheat code that most people would just buy the game at 13, 14, right? uh, Thinking it was fine. And then they would turn on all this like violent content theoretically. And Sega ended up selling way more copies than Nintendo did by like almost five times. And so there was like also a pretty clear want from a lot of gamers to not have their games be like, you know, uh, familified or whatever. It, It just created a lot of contention. I think at that time, as I said, like, what was the right approach to handling these games?
1: Yeah. And, and this kind of goes back to the novelty of it too, right? Like you can imagine little Timmy asking his mom to get the, uh, the Genesis version and the mom doesn't know about the blood and gore, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This behavior is very consistent with how both companies have developed and, you know, created their marketing brands sin- since then. Cause like SEGA and Nintendo, this is like a full digression, uh, but like SEGA and Nintendo were rivals back in the day and SEGA would always try to be the cool kid, right?
0: I, oh, I don't know if you know the
1: history between the two companies, but there, there's this thing like SEGA does what Nintendon't. do um, <laughs> And like the whole Sonic the Hedgehog series was uh, a way to compete against Mario, whereas yeah. Mario's like very sterile and family friendly and Sonic is a little bit edgy. There's actually a book that goes into this, uh, not written by me, but it's very interesting, this was kind of a turning point and it's very on brand with how both companies have acted even since then. Like Nintendo is still the family friendly company. God forbid you have a gun in a Nintendo game.
0: <laughs> wasn't Mario with a gun.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it's funny. Cause then you have games like super smash bros, which is like pretty violent. Uh, it's just, in you a know, cartoony five. way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in a cartoony yeah. way. Yeah, but then, like, oh. you have
1: Sega who made, like, Shadow the Hedgehog. I don't know if you remember that game. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's literally Sonic, but darker. Shadow.
1: No, no, no. It's Shadow with a gun. It's it's literally the same. It's the same character practically yeah. as Sonic, right? It's just a hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, you're going to... The fans are going to flame us, but... Oh, my
0: you know. God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, after the new game that's coming out, uh, I, I don't know if there's even fans of Sonic anymore. Oh, no. Um... Anyways, we've, we've gotten a bit distracted, but I think the reason why I bring this up is because a lot of this conflict and confusion around how to handle this game actually prompted a set of Senate hearings that happened in, in 1992. And some of the testimonies that were like talked about in these hearings in retrospect, are is honestly kind of hilarious to read back about. The first half of the hearing bought on some four experts on child psychology. And they actively testified that video games encourage violence and they testified that it establishes violence as the first response that a child should go to when they want to resolve conflict, which is a, a pretty like strong claim to bake. I also think this is these findings have changed a lot over the years. Like I couldn't find too many that said that it was like a one to one where children who played video games were much more likely to play video games. So yeah. I would say a lot of this perception has changed
1: over time, don't you think? I think it still goes back to the novelty. It's so easy to just blame the shiny thing on the block. That seems to have some connection, whether it's D&D or the video games or even senators now don't understand video games, but they they didn't understand it back then either. So it was easy to point to it. There's no research done. It's going to take years and years to do proper research on it. I feel like it was an easy out.
0: Yeah, it also was a bit of a Wild West situation, right? There wasn't any standardization. The lack of a rating system made it so that Sega could make those changes, rate their game as a 13 plus game, and then make it very easy for people to access some of that more violent content, which like, yep. maybe arguably could have been rated like a little bit higher. Right. And so there just wasn't standardization here and it made it so that it was a, like, you get what you get kind of situation for a lot of parents that were trying to play or like ki- that parents that had kids who wanted to
1: play video games. I think I should ask this later, but I'll just ask it now. Did your parents care about video game ratings? Cause they existed when we were kids. I feel like my
0: parents did. I definitely had to convince them more strongly if a game was rated M or yeah. anything like that, if they saw M, especially because nowadays it gives the reasons for why it is right. And so mm-hmm. if there was anything mentioned about like sexual content or like extreme violence or nudity, it yeah. was like a, we're not getting you this game. It's not, it's like not happening. So they
1: were pretty strict about ratings. I would say. Got it. What about you? I was a Nintendo kid, so there were no, there were not many M games to start with. <laughs> That's fair. I think teen game, I don't remember my parents ever looking at the ratings. I feel like they cared more about movie ratings. Cause I also used to watch a lot of movies. Yeah. But video games, they didn't care too much. Yeah. I think it, it just depends on the family. I think having the content is like helpful.
0: For kids and the fact that it didn't exist at all, made it so that you really didn't know what you were getting yourself into when it came to getting kids, the video games at the time. Yeah. Um, going back a little bit to the whole rivalry between Nintendo and Sega and stuff, what was funny is Nintendo and Sega basically just used the Senate hearing as an opportunity to stir the pot and just direct a lot of anger towards the other party. Nintendo is constantly pointing blame towards Sega. Sega was like, they don't use our reading system. An outcome of the, of the, all of the hearings was that there was an act that was proposed in 1994, which would have established the Interactive Entertainment Ratings Commission, which was basically like a, a group of people that would effectively be rating video games. And there was a second hearing that also happened, which forced the industry to create the interactive digital Software Association, the IDSA. With this then created the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, mm-hmm. which created the ESRB. And this is what's used to this day. This is what rates all the video games uh, and gives like concrete reasons for why video games are rated a certain way. And so this is the most concrete effect of that anyways, the fact that like we have this new standardized rating system that lasts um, through the years that, that makes it accessible to know what you're getting yourself into when it comes to video games. And... And this is just
1: in North America. I just remember this.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was probably a whole other debacle across other countries. I wonder what the rating system was like in in Korea
1: and Japan and stuff like that. I know. I don't know Asia that well, but I know for sure in Europe they use Peggy, Pan Pan European yes. Game Information because they always say like Peggy sixteen or whatever in, in European uh... <laughs> Peggy sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: The other totally unrelated thing is European games had like a different uh way of compiling their games onto CDs than uh-huh. uh, American ones did. I remember as a kid, I went to London and I bought a video game there and oh, I came no. back to America, plugged it in, and my PS2 couldn't read it. And wow. I was heartbroken because yeah. all I wanted to do was play this freaking video game. But yeah, I think like one of the things that I wish we could talk about a bit more as well is just how other countries kind of handle a lot of these things.
1: I think Um, we're going to have to uh, book out five episodes because I'm on the wiki page and there's three, uh, one second, two, four, six, eight, ten, two, four, six, eight, ten. There's 24 different rating systems across the world, including two for Japan specifically. Japan has two rating systems. Oh my God. Why do they have two rating systems? They have one for PC games only and one for console games.
0: Interesting that they have different rating systems between PC and console games.
1: Yeah. Their console game ratings are A, B, C, D, and Z. (laughs) That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Is Z the most mature one?
1: Yeah, Z is like 18 plus. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. I wonder why they picked Z. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, um, anyways, I digress. Uh, yeah. So I just want to note that this is just for North America. Yeah. I mean, every country has had the same process
0: to some degree, right? Like right. video games came into existence and they had to basically just over time, find a way to regulate it. Like any other industry that was really up there. I think there was just a lot more fear around video games because again, you also had this perception that video games were for kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like a lot of adults were playing not as much as now anyways. And so there was a lot of fear around this uh, like indoctrination, right. Or like changing kids' behaviors when they were super young, which I don't know if it exists as much today, but I think at that time it was definitely like a pretty strong factor in why people were so paranoid when it came to the fears of video games. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember some of the other games that you played as a kid that were controversial or that, that you had to convince your parents to get you? I think I can recall like a few of them.
1: As I said, I was a Nintendo kid growing up. So like the controversial games weren't even available on the platform. Yeah. But I do remember like within my friend's circle who had like Xboxes and PlayStations, the two main ones were Manhunt. This was made by Rockstar. Mm-hmm. Actually, both examples were made by Rockstar. Manhunt was, I think, just banned in a couple countries. because yeah. It was too violent. And then obviously, Grand Theft Auto, the coffee mod and all that sexual content stuff. I feel like those were the talk of the playground when I was growing up. (gasps) Yeah. I remember Grand Theft
0: Auto being one of those games that like certain kids in elementary and middle school had, and Mm -hmm. certain ones did not And it was just like, oh yeah, my parents let me get it. Or, oh no, my parents said that I couldn't have it. I I remember like going over to friends' houses so that I could play it every once in a while because my parents were like not going to get it for me in any way, shape or form. Yeah. The other one that I remember was Call of Duty. Uh, the particular one that I think of when I look back is Modern Warfare 2. Call of Duty was game, like we all played Call of Duty, right? Like it was a very social thing. Every I feel like every young gamer has memories of inviting people over to play co-op Call of Duty and like uh, screen peeking or you look at everyone else's screen and kill them when they weren't paying attention. Yeah, yeah like every I think we all played it. Um, but there were certain, like, levels which were very controversial. The one that comes to mind is one called No Russian, um, yeah. which is a level where you literally play out a mass shooting in a Russian airport. This is extremely controversial. Like, it was intended to be this, like, approach at making games a bit more nuanced. And nuanced. I think, like, yeah, I don't know. That's That was their intent. Their intent was, uh-huh. like, they still argued to date that it was meant to be, like, an experience that pushed gamers to do something controversial. Yeah. But I think the approach just like wasn't right. And it was excessively, it was horrible. And honestly, mm-hmm. in my opinion, like it was not a good level. I don't know if it should have been made. It was just too aggressive and violent and It stirred up a lot of controversy. It was like censored in Germany. It was censored in Japan and a lot of other countries. And I think now they show like a little warning before the, the mission in the remake where you could choose to just skip the mission altogether because there's literally zero story consequence for what you do in that story. Yeah, It's pretty bad though.
1: I, I have not played it. I've only played Mario warfare one. Yeah. So I, I never got to experience the uh, nuance of no Russian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God. I love that. It's so funny. Cause nowadays there are games that are nuanced that have very high amounts of violence that yeah. are like lauded as being like great story. Like the last of us, I always come back to the last, last of us. us. Spec Ridic- Ops. Yeah. Ridiculously violent games, honestly, mm-hmm. but like. They were able to actually tell a story in like a nuanced way. I guess the art form just wasn't ready yet. Yeah. For, I, I mean, no I mean, it's Russian. like
1: different. It's like no, Russian. I don't know if you can argue no Russians good now. Cause it's no, like, it's not, it's good. like a forced sequence.
0: It's horribly done. it also has no effect on the story. You can yeah. just like not do anything. You can just walk through the airport while everyone else does the murdering and nothing actually happens. It mm-hmm. was just bad. It was not tasteful. But there were, like, articles written about it. I think a lot of people saw this and were like, oh, Call of Duty, not a good game. Inspires violence, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, what are some other events or changes to the way that, like, we handle games that you think have... Uh, have changed the way that like people perceive video games.
1: Uh, so to answer your question, I feel like virtual reality maybe added another dimension. It's like a more interesting, visceral experience. Imagine this, this is gonna be so bad. This is gonna sound so bad. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, imagine no Russian in a VR setting. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> right, that yeah. is ten times worse than the original version.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious whether there has been studies done about the effect of playing VR, VR games because it is very disassociative. It does get to you sometimes when you're playing these games for like long
1: periods of time. You, and it's you new, disconnect. so nobody knows that much about it. Yeah, yeah. It's like video yeah. games all over again. I like. I wonder, because um, I look at articles that talk about VR chat, for instance. I don't know if you know VR chat. I do, yeah. I wonder what the positives are and the negatives of those things are because I feel like a lot of video game community and like Discord servers and all that has edged in or creeped into the world of like people hold illegal activities in yeah. these worlds, uh, whether it's you know, terrorist groups or I think like pornography rings, let's just yeah. leave it at that, and all these things. So I, I wonder if VR. It's creating a a, a separate channel for these like really bad things to happen. Yeah.
0: I've heard of uh, even Minecraft actually been using for a lot of these illegal activities, which is Mm. pretty interesting. Like the current servers dedicated to the stuff and then find ways to link you to content that they should not be linking you to, but I feel, I totally agree with VR. Like, I think it's a new fundamental way of engaging with a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. And it's still not very accessible, right? Like most people haven't tried VR or played VR games, but we're heading in that direction. And as yeah. it becomes more accessible, I wonder whether we'll be ready like ready to handle the actual implications of that. Because I yeah. think some of the, I think VR, there are some very legitimate concerns about the impact it would have on like kids to spend way too long playing VR games hmm. and the fact that it is like a little disassociative and that kind of get to your head.
1: I don't know. Maybe I'm the paranoid boomer now, but it'll be. I think it's like a good, anal- sorry. I think it's like a good analogy to 40 years ago, to be honest. Yeah. Cause like. We don't really know much about it. I I think there's a stereotype that lazy people use VR because like you know, they're like oh people don't want to go outside so they put on the <laughs> so uh, the headset. Although if you watch Ready Player One, that main character there's fit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's somehow fit in that movie. Oh god! So I I feel like we're we're kind of at the cusp of what we just talked about, right? Like the past forty years, it's happening again. Yeah. And it also, the other thing is a context
0: of it has changed, right? Like kids mm-hmm. nowadays are much more ingrained in technology in a way that they weren't back then, right? Like you have little five and six year olds with like iPhones that have ready access to TikTok and stuff like that. There's oh, some very no. valid conversations. Oh, no. I know it's horrifying. I have some little cousins that use TikTok and like Instagram Reels and they are addicted, like no other word for it, honestly. Yeah. So I feel like in the broader scope of everything else that's happening when it comes to kids access to a lot of these things, it's going to be interesting to see how we kind of respond to that as video do again, adapt over time, which will be, which will be cool. The other thing I know you and I have talked a lot about is how the people's perceptions of it have changed from a cultural perspective, right? Like the most concrete example of this is streaming, mm-hmm. um, Prior to this, I think games were seen very clearly as like a, like you play games, but beyond that, it's not really like a professional career for most folks. There definitely were gaming like competitions and people were professional gamers or, you know, went to gaming journalism the way that you did, but it wasn't nearly as in people's face as it is right now. And with the advent of Twitch and gaming streaming more and more people are exposed to this more and more kids are exposed to this and it's turned into a very viable sought after career path for a lot of young kids which is interesting
1: i do have a i do know of a lot of folks who like quit their job and try to do full-time streaming (laughs) it's very hard to get into but yeah i think esports players athletes i (laughs) Esports sports professionals. I don't know what the right term is anymore. E-athletes, like e-girls. e E-athletes, e-girls. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I think those folks are a little bit, like they've been around a little bit longer than streamers, obviously, right? I remember yep. when I was in high school or in a university, like Dota 2 championships, things like that, that. They made a lot of money. They had sponsorships and stuff. But I think, yes, yeah, streaming is definitely at another level of, yes, you have to be a good entertainer, but like, literally anybody can do it. At least for a professional e-athlete, you have to be good at the game, which requires a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But I think the streaming scene is a lot more diverse in what you can do and what you can accomplish. Yeah, it's also just, I might have said
0: this already, but it's just more accessible, right? Like most people weren't watching gaming competitions. But yeah. the fact that you can just go on Twitch and watch so many people very successfully have a career around gaming have made it so that I think I I remember seeing a survey around the most sought after jobs for kids that that, that are like in high school Mm -hmm. and middle school and like what they wanted to be when they were growing up and streamer and YouTuber were one of the top entries. Like it was a top 10 job. I think it was actually top five, whereas like doctor and lawyer and stuff like that had been, had gone down very significantly from 10 years ago. So it's genuinely changing the way that like kids are, are looking at their future jobs uh, and like what's viable and what's not viable,
1: which is interesting yeah unfortunately, kids, if you're listening, the demand side of streamers is capped, yeah compared to doctors and lawyers so please please don't do it. It's a very bad idea for most part uh, for, <laughs> for the most part um, it's a lot of work yeah People it's think also it's just, just you play video games on camera, but that is not the case
0: oh, it's crazy it's it takes over your life. But I also do wonder whether it's changed, whether people think gaming is productive or not. I think a lot of people historically haven't viewed it as being a productive thing, but maybe mm-hmm. now they do because, I don't know, you're practicing. I guess we'll really find out over the next couple of years as like more and more people try out these career paths.
1: Yeah. This is, sorry, unrelated, but I think streaming, like going back to your point of it's a new type of medium or dimension to gaming and that's very we'll talk about this next episode as well but stream streams aren't rated there's no esrb rating on streams and like a lot of big streamers they they go gamble they do a lot of stuff that like kids probably shouldn't be watching and i think it's like almost self-moderated of like the streamer has to do the due diligence of putting it in their title of 18 plus Yeah, there's definitely a very self-regulated approach. Like
0: Twitch talks about its moderation efforts, but I think there's a very good parallel to video games and video game companies wanting to self-regulate their rating system, right? Yeah. They're fundamentally incentivized not to moderate well because it affects how many users use the platform. And so even though I know great people that work at Twitch and they're very well-meaning, it's not to say that they actively don't work on their moderating, but there's an inherent conflict of interest here where the regulations around this should probably be created at some point by an outside agency
1: or an outside entity eventually, I think. Yeah. Sorry. Now I'm imagining little kids, quote unquote, accidentally running into like an amaranth stream and oh my God, <laughs> please parents, please make sure that doesn't happen. <gasps> I mean, there's, there is age gating for sure happening on. Oh, is there? Of okay. Other. Yeah. No, okay, there's, okay.
0: I'm pretty sure that if you have <laughs> certain content, it, yeah. you're like flagged by an 18 plus only. Okay. But I think the gambling one, which we will definitely touch upon in our next episode is a, a more worrying one, frankly, because it, it like influences behavior in a way that's like really, really scary, especially as kids when you're like receptive to addictiveness. We call that out, right? Like me and you were literally addicted to video games, mm-hmm. theoretically.
1: And I think it's one of the big quits. Practically, I don't, I don't know how how theoretically we can get it. We're already past our. Uh... <laughs> You're right. We, we're kind of hooked. Yeah. Cool. Going back to
0: the, like a lot of the stuff that we talked about, I think there's a lot of reasons for why a lot of these games were perceived as controversial, right? Like violence, lack of moderation, et cetera. But I guess my question for you is, do you think that the bar for controversial is lower for video games than other forms of media, like film, or books, or yeah.
1: I thought about this a little bit, but just uh, uh, gonna not answer your question initially, but it'll, it'll get there. <laughs> I feel like video games recently have gotten less controversial compared to the past. In what way? There aren't games that are like in the news for being ha- having like too much violence or having too much sexual content. I, I feel like the rate at which that has been happening has slowed down. Maybe Do you think the rate
0: at which it's happening in video games has slowed down or the rate at which there is a tension drawn towards it
1: has gone down? For me, I think it's one and the same because I'm not going into each video game to see what is happening. Maybe it's because I don't look into all the shovelware that's released on Steam every day and I'm sure <laughs> there's some really bad stuff on there. Yeah, But in like mainstream media, I feel like it hasn't become much of a problem as of late compared to like when i was in high school so i think it's more the latter than the former
0: honestly i ah. like i think it's just because we've gotten used to it right like we not gotten used to it in the sense that there's no going back but i think we've gotten used to video games as a forum because a lot of these games are still very violent right we talked about the last of us the one that just came out last of us part two has some really horrific depictions of violence in it. Uh If it were seen in the 1990s or something like that, it would not be perceived very positively. It would almost definitely be brought up as an example in some of the Senate hearings. And I think like, even the recent Doom games, right? Like, uh, violence is still in a lot of these games. Uh, Mm -hmm. Call of Duty, in fact, they like gamify it more than they did back in the day. Like, it's almost made fun of. Yeah, I remember in the remake for Modern Warfare, there is literally like a skin of A of war torn, middle Eastern town that's reskinned to be Christmas themed. Where if you have like a, an airplane fly over it, it like drops bombs while having ho, 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 Santa Claus (laughs) So It's horrific. It's so bad. So I I guess my point is I think they're still, it's still there, but the attention drawn towards it has gone down significantly because we realize either one, the impact of it isn't that much on, on kids or two, we've just gotten desensitized to it because it's not like it's going to go away. I'm trying to think why that even has happened. When you say like why that's happened, do you mean like why we've gotten used to it? Yeah. I mean, it's just a, an older forum, right? Like back in the day, it was perceived as like only games or like games are only for kids. And so right. the audience was smaller and the perceived impact of that violence was much higher. Mm-hmm. Whereas like nowadays we realize it's just a, it's just a form of art, like everything else, right? Like we right. don't vilify books that have violent content in them as being like supportive of violence there's so many movies that are very very violent but like we don't vilify them for that and so i think it's become this much more commonplace accessible highly regulated space Mm -hmm. in a way that allows the art form to actually do what it needs to without the fear Mm -hmm. of being vilified and criticized as much
1: and and to be honest i feel like the old guard of people who tried to use gore for the shock factor, let's say like top of mind examples, like Cliff Blazinski, he made gears of war. Oh yeah. Not saying he's like, not saying he's crazy or anything, but like, I think he, he tried to use it to, to shock people like the chainsaw gun and stuff. Whereas Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of going back to like storytelling, A lot of how violence is used nowadays, question mark, is to in service of a story, question mark. Yeah, yeah, I
0: I would agree. I also think the things that are seen as controversial have changed, right? Like it's gone from things like violence and like sexual content to gambling and like loot boxes and and like predatory tactics, which arguably should be controversial and should be criticized very, very heavily because they actually have an effect on like kids and their behaviors. But, yeah, I don't know. It, it's been interesting to watch that play out. <sighs> One thing I also want to touch on a little bit is the fact that the perception of video game is fundamentally different between people that actually play games and people who are gamers. Um, right. And so when I was doing some of my research around you know, like how people actually perceive this, there was a like a Pew Research Center study that was done to assess how people view video games. So they asked people questions like, are video games a waste of time? Do they help develop good problem-solving skills? Um, things like that. And the answers were then split across people who are gamers versus people who are not gamers. And the biggest takeaway that I got was that there's a very strong perception difference between people that actively play games versus people who don't play games. So yeah. one example of this is whether or not games develop like good problem-solving skills. For people who play games, one in four gamers thought that statement of, video games helping develop good problem-solving skills was true for most games. Whereas people who don't play video games, most of them thought that it actually didn't do that or that they weren't really sure whether or not video games did anything for for problem-solving skills. There was another one about whether or not it's a better form of entertainment than watching TVs. And I think you see a very similar split where like 44% of people thought that most video games were, were like a better form of entertainment. Whereas like one in three people who don't play video games thought that it wasn't true for most games. So they thought that like TV was a better form of entertainment than video games. And I think the last one is around like teamwork and communication. Whenever asked whether or not video games actually promote like good communication between people, for folks that play video games, it was like a pretty resounding yes for the most part. Like I think 15% said it was true for most games. 48% said it was true for some games but not other. But overall, like gamers... Thought that video games were pretty good for for promoting teamwork, whereas people who don't play video games at all, mm-hmm. uh, it was much different. Like forty percent of them said they do, they weren't sure, um, and an active twenty six percent of them said they didn't think this was true for most video games. And so I feel like in general, there's a lot of disparity between people who play video games and how they perceive video games versus people who don't play video games uh, and the perceptions that they have of the of 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 the medium.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like we, we could say the same thing with the vice as well. If we if we try to frame this for like alcoholics and non-alcoholics, <laughs> right? alcoholics will say alcohol is great, right? And then the, the non-alcoholics will be like, maybe you should uh, drink in moderation, um, or, or like you know people who are on drugs. Uh, no, no, but I, I, I get your point. Um yeah. I, I think I, I feel like a lot of this is because, like, again this is i got to keep up this streak but like you know people who've only played who people who only know video games as like pong or something like they don't know what video games provide they're not going to answer this the same way yeah like the example that i would use is like teamwork and communication if you've played a competitive video game before oh my god you need to be very good at communicating <laughs> yeah right and yeah. like if you think video games is just candy crush and um uh subway runner there's no reason for you to think that it needs good communication
0: i feel like what's really interesting is that the active part of video games is like a pretty big reason for why the negative traits are recognized so for example like a lot of the worries around like violence and stuff like that people perceive video games as being more contributive to those things because of the fact that you're actively encouraging the violence in video games and stuff like that. Yeah. But the positive traits of being active in video games around things like problem solving and communicating, all of those are, they're just like not recognized as much, which I think is pretty interesting. And I wonder what's it's going to take to change that and actually acknowledge some of the very positive attributes, because it is a pretty good thing. Like I, I would argue, I, I would even encourage my kids to play certain video games because generally does develop like good thinking skills and the communication is i I think it's actually pretty good for people to moderately play video games
1: yeah i feel like things like brain age when it first came out was a really good example there also to be honest if you think about it like duolingo is a video game yeah it's just a video game (laughs) right and like people learn their languages from it so yeah I, i i feel like people who don't really play first you know don't really know the broad set of video games that exist and second so probably misclassify video games in
0: general. yeah yeah totally cool i think the last thing we wanted to touch upon real quick was how some of this differs between localities right like i i think a lot of the things that we've described around perceptions of violence and stuff are pretty focused on the u.s audience i'm kind of curious like how do you think this is different in other parts of the world do you think they're harsher do you think they're
1: less harsh yeah, we talked about this before like during pre-production, but like in Korea, e-athletes, esports athletes <laughs> are like just all at the same bar as like singers and actors in terms of celebrity status. I remember growing up and I used to watch professional StarCraft, right? Mm-hmm. There the viewership for that was insane. And this was before like online streaming and stuff. So people would actually show up in person To watch two people play StarCraft on a big projector screen. That's wild. Wow. They have sponsors. the, The top players make tons of money. And like these folks have become just like celebrity. Like they show up on TV shows in Korea alongside actors and musicians and all these other folks. So I feel like it's like... Maybe gaming itself isn't broadly uh, as accepted, but like the people in the industry, especially the successful folks are. And you can see that with, I guess Japan has its own kind of stigma with otakus and stuff like that. But if you think about like Miyamoto or Kojima or some of the folks who are staple names in video games, they're like treated as like (laughs) geniuses and innovators and all these different things.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think like every country is wrangling with video games in its own kind of way, and it naturally adapts to the, the culture of that place. Like, I, I would be really surprised if anyone in India is like actively encouraged to be a video gamer. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as accepted
1: as like places like here or in, in Asia in general. I have a quick question actually Are there like uh, internet cafes in India? I'm sure they exist, but it, I don't is it think like it's a big like, part of the culture.
0: I wouldn't say it's a big part of the culture. And okay. even if it is, I think it's more so like a, it's like a productive thing as opposed to like an entertainment thing the way that it is in like Japan or, or Korea or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause I like, I don't know how many people actually go there cause I didn't grow up there, but I feel like you know, after school or after dinner or whatever, kids would go to these internet cafes and play like League of Legends or something. Yeah. And I also saw that in Korea, you know, consoles aren't that big of a thing in these countries, Yeah, so they would have these places where you can like rent out a PS five, basically, and just play at like the quote unquote internet cafe. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of differences in the types of games that are popular between the East and the West. And we could have a whole other couple episodes that just talk about like philosophy around like game design and things like that. For anyone that is interested, there is a very long research paper called Gaming Cultures and Place in Asia Pacific uh, that was published in like 2009. It is literally like 315 pages. I parsed through it briefly, but there was just too much to, to bring into the podcast. But look it up. I think you find some very interesting reading in there about how video games are perceived in uh, different locations. Yeah, it's free. <laughs> As we kind of wrap up this episode uh, and lead into the following episode, I wanted to very concretely call out some of the traits that I think we are uh, calling out for video games. I think to state it very clearly, there's concerns around video games, you know, potentially promoting violence. Um, I think the ones that are more prevalent nowadays are related to whether or not they make you lazy or whether they're like actually a waste of time. Some of the other things that come up are whether or not they make you antisocial, whether they're addictive. And I think the last one is this perception of video games as only being for kids. Going into the next episode, we kind of want to address a lot of these and call out which ones we think are valid, and which
1: ones we think are invalid? Um, yeah, we're the video game council. of, so kind of make the definitive statement on yes. what parts of video games are good or and what parts are bad,
0: and it won't be biased at all because nope. uh, Tristan and I don't care about video games at, nope. at the, in the least um. <laughs> But yeah i think the next episode is going to be a pretty fascinating discussion uh, there's some like very very valid criticisms in video games that are grounded our experiences and some of the things that like we're seeing around the broader culture which i think are pretty interesting to call out so yeah tune in next week when we discuss that but that's all for this week thanks again for joining us folks have a good one thanks for listening